Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Uh, we are really, really glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. Well, welcome those of you over in East Hall, those of you tuning in. All right, this is the last week of our four-week series that we have called Great Question. It's actually a series that we ask you to help us design. We ask you to vote on the questions that you most wanted to have answered uh, regarding Christianity. We ended up with eight questions. Four of those questions we've been answering on our podcast, which is called Church Unplugged, and four of the questions we have handled here on the weekend services. The question we're going to talk about today uh, is the question that got the most votes out of all the questions. And this is the question. If God is real and wants to be known, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? If God is real, why doesn't he make himself more more obvious? It's a great question. It's actually the point Bertrand Russell was making. Bertrand Russell is an, uh, a philosopher who was an atheist who wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. Someone asked him one time, uh, if you die and you find out there is a God, what are you going to say to him? And Bertrand Russell responded, I will say you did not give us sufficient evidence. You did not give us sufficient evidence. Why doesn't God make himself more obvious? I mean, if you were God and Bertrand Russell was saying that stuff about you, what would you do? Why doesn't God show up with such power and a display so amazing that it's virtually impossible to be an atheist? Another way to look at that is why does God allow room in the universe for someone like Bertrand Russell? Does the fact that Bertrand Russell does not believe in God, does that mean that God doesn't exist, or does that tell us something about the kind of God he is? Now, to be fair, Bertrand Russell says there's not enough evidence. The disciples said there was enough evidence. In fact, uh, the disciple John wrote his gospel, and he says the purpose of his gospel was to provide enough evidence for you and for me that we might believe. This is what John says in John chapter 20. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote so that we would have enough evidence. So let, let me tell you this. If you're not a Christian uh, and you've never read the Gospels, you should. Because you shouldn't decide that there's not enough evidence if you haven't read the evidence. But there are some people who have read all, a lot of stuff about God, and still he is not obvious to them, so why doesn't God make himself more obvious? I'm going to cover three things today. One, I want to talk about the problem with obvious, the problem with obvious. Then I want to talk about the solution to obvious. And then I want to talk about what happens when God becomes obvious. All right, first, the problem with obvious. I'm going to start with a small problem and then get to the big problem that is unique to God making himself more obvious. But the small problem with obvious, there are actually two, is that uh, whenever you say that something should become more obvious, uh, obvious is a sliding scale. And what I mean is that what's obvious to you may not be obvious to the person sitting next to you, which is why we like a trial by jury instead of a trial by one. And what happens in a hung jury? What happens in a hung jury is that what is obvious to some people is not obvious to the rest of the people. They don't agree, right? So 
there are certain things, right, where that it's just a sliding scale. What seems obvious to you may not be obvious to the person next to you. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture like this. How many of you see a rabbit? Raise your hand. How many of you see a duck? Raise your hand. See? Well, people saw a duck. Right. Now, those of you who saw a rabbit were going, wait, wait, what do you mean? There's no duck. But then now you see the duck, right? Because what's obvious is a sliding scale, right? That's number one. The second problem with obvious is that uh, facts do not interpret themselves. Facts do not interpret themselves, which means that two people can see the same thing or experience the same thing and come to two completely different conclusions. For instance, have you ever thought to yourself, you know, if God would ever speak to me in an audible voice, if he would just speak to me in an audible voice once, just once, then I would believe or then I would never doubt again. Let me show you. This is a story in John chapter 12. Jesus is speaking, and he says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. You see what happened? In this passage, God spoke, and his voice was the kind of voice that you'd expect. It wasn't like a high, squeaky voice, right? It was a, it was a big, loud voice. And when he spoke, there were some people who went, oh, my goodness, that's the voice at least of an angel. And they understood it. Others, others said, no, no, there's a natural explanation. It was just thunder. So when you say, if God would just speak to me one time audibly, then I would believe. Maybe, maybe not. Because facts don't interpret themselves. Francis Collins and James Watson are two scientists that, uh, that were extensively involved in the Human Genome Project, mapping the human genome. Amazing stuff. At the end of years of that mapping, uh, they said this, James Watson, who was a prominent scientist and also an atheist, said after spending all this time look, working on the human genome, I'm more convinced now than ever that there is no God. Francis Collins, prominent scientist who also happens to be a Christian, said after spending years mapping the human genome, I'm convinced now more than ever that there must be a God. Two prominent scientists looking at the exact same evidence come to two completely different conclusions. Why? Because the problem with obvious is not just that it's a sliding scale. What's obvious to you may not be obvious to the person next to you, but facts don't interpret themselves. Right? But the big problem with God becoming obvious is this. Here's a question. How much God do you think you can take? How much God can you take? This is what I mean. Um, there's a light source that's underneath the drum set. It's a tiny light source. Maybe you can see it now. If you're in the blast zone, which is about right here, and you're light sensitive, you might want to cover your eyes or just squint right now. Okay, Greg, go ahead. Oh, my, I, I did it again. I looked right into it. Okay, turn it off. <laughs> so now I'm seeing like blue spots, right? Now if that light source, that was tiny, if the light source was as big as the wall, then everyone would have had to shield their eyes. If it was as big as a building, and, it, and you looked at it, it might damage your eyes. Why? 
Your eyes are designed for light. But if it's too bright, it will actually do damage to your eyes. We have a great sound system in this room and over in East Hall. Some of you think it's too good. <laughs> right? Because our sound system can take your favorite song and have your favorite song give you great pleasure, or it can take your favorite song and put you in agony. Why? Because your ear is designed for sound, but there's just so much sound that you can bear before it destroys your ear. If that's true of something as simple as sight and sound, how much more true is it of a God to whom sight and sound are nothing? So when you say, I want God to make himself obvious to me, are you sure you know what you are asking for? Let me show you in Exodus chapter 33, God is speaking to Moses, and this is what he says. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You see what's happened? Moses says to God, Make yourself obvious. Show me your glory. God says, Moses, you don't know what you're asking. If I show you just a little bit too much of my glory, you'll die. If I showed you all of who I am, every atom in your body would explode. So I'll tell you what, I will take you and I'll put you in the, in the cleft of a rock and I will cover you until I've completely almost passed by and you will see just a sliver of me, which is all you can bear. That's what I'll show you. How much God can you take? Hey, there was a movie a long time ago called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Steven Spielberg. A lot of silly things in that movie, but one thing that I think Steven Spielberg got right was if you've seen the movie, right at the end of the movie, the Nazi is, he takes the lid off the Ark of the Covenant, and the presence of God begins to swirl out of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember that scene, the first thing he says is, he says, it's beautiful! And then his face melts off, right? And here's the problem. Actually, there, there are two parts to this problem. If God makes himself obvious to you, if he makes himself too obvious to you, he'll melt your face. Right, that's the first part of the problem. Second part of the problem is this. You need a God who can melt your face. You need a God who can melt your face. Let, let me, let's go back to Bertrand Russell. What kind of a God would God need to be for Bertrand Russell to fall on his knees and worship him? Now, let's be honest. I've read some of Bertrand Russell. He struck me as a man who was very smart, very bright, and thought very highly of himself. The kind of God that he would need to worship would have to be so big, so smart, so beyond him, so almost beyond comprehension, so dangerous that Bertrand Russell's knees would buckle and he would fall on his face before that God. That's true of you too. 
know, when you think of a God and you think of God being like a big grandfather with a big white beard and kind eyes, what good is he when you need a God of power at times in your life? You need a God who can speak galaxies into existence, who can create worlds and ecosystems and who loves justice with a passion and who can take anything that is shattered and restore it, even your own heart and your own soul. You need a God, if he ever decided to show himself to you, would have to stick you in the cleft of a mountain and then take every precaution because if you got one more ounce of him than you should, you will die. You need a God who is transcendent. But you also need a God who can come close who can speak to you when you need to be spoken to, who can speak in a way that you can understand, who will listen to you, who will care for you, who will be tender with you. You need a God who is both transcendent and intimate. And that brings me to the solution to obvious. The solution to obvious. I'm going to do the same thing with the solution as I did with the problem. Let me start small and go big. So uh, there are people sometimes who have said to me, why didn't God just write, write it in the sky? Right? Big sky up there. He could write it every day. You know, the, uh, just up there in the sky. Hey, little people. I'm God. I'm here. Worship me. Signed, the Almighty. Right? And he could do it in different languages on different days just so everybody would understand. Here's the thing. In 1905, a man named Albert Einstein published a theory called the theory of relativity. Over the next years, through different observations and discoveries, that uh, theory was strengthened, particularly by a guy named Edwin Hubble. You might recognize that name from the Hubble telescope. And two guys who won the Nobel Prize, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson, for their measurement of the cosmic radiation background echo. And what those scientists discovered was through that theory that science had been wrong for 200 years. That modern science, from its beginning, had, had believed that the universe was static for 200 years, which means that it, it wasn't expanding, it wasn't contracting, that it was infinite, that time, matter, space, and energy had always been around. And then Einstein, uh, Hubble, Penzias, and Wilson proved they were wrong proved that the universe was expanding, which means that time, matter, energy, and space had not always existed. At one point, there was nothing. Genesis, chapter 1. Oh, this is cool about Genesis. You know, there are, uh, in every religion, there is an, a creation account. But the creation account in Genesis is the only place where it says that God created something out of nothing. Every other place God creates, but he has stuff to work with. But in Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, something came. But some scientists came up with some alternate theories One of them is the oscillating universe theory. Another is the multiverse theory, that there are multiple universes out there in different dimensions, and that's why our universe looks as if it was created, but it wasn't. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Then it says this, Day by day it pours forth speech, and night after night it reveals knowledge. Here's the thing. 
I think God did write in the sky. And I believe he wrote in a language that people could understand. He wrote in the language of science. And he gave scientists the ability to read that message. But facts do not interpret themselves. And what's obvious to some isn't obvious to all. That's the small solution. But the big solution is this the big problem with God making himself obvious is that we need a God who is transcendent, who is beyond us. But how does this transcendent God become intimate in such a way that instead of, as he reveals himself to us, instead of destroying us, he can actually help us, can actually save us? The Gospel of John was written by the disciple in an effort to give us the evidence that we need to believe. And at the very beginning of his Gospel, when he's introducing Jesus, he, called, he gives him a particular title, in Greek, the word is logos. And in the Greek culture, logos meant the energy, the reason behind the universe, behind all that is, the power. And this is what John says when he's describing Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the word, that's logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You know what John says. John says, God, that transcendent God has become intimate. That God solved the problem for us. That how he would show himself to us without destroying us, but actually save us through the person of Jesus. Here's a question. What makes Jesus so unique? Back up. What made Einstein unique? The thing that made Einstein unique was that he was very, very smart. If I went up to you, if anybody comes up to you today and they say, hey, I got a question. Are you smarter than Albert Einstein? <laughs> I suppose it's not a person in our church that would go, well, let me think about that. Maybe I am, right? Most of us would say, no, Albert Einstein was a genius. I'm not that smart. But if somebody said to you, hey, let me ask you a question. Are you a better person? Is Albert Einstein a better person than you are? you go, I don't know. I might be in the running there. Because I don't know what kind of person. Just because you're smart doesn't make you a good person. But if somebody came up to you and they said, let me ask you a question. Are you a better person than Jesus? I don't care if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. You'd begin to kind of laugh, a nervous laugh, and you'd look around to see if it was some kind of a joke. Because you'd say, no one's a better person than Jesus. Who would ever say, yeah. I'm in the running for the best person, right? I can compare myself to Jesus. And the reason is because Jesus is the goat. He's the, he's like, he's the greatest of all time, right? And everybody knows that. And this is the thing. Jesus was a religious teacher. And he gave us an, an impossible standard to live up to. And a lot of people ignore that. In the Sermon on the Mount, you know, which is Jesus' most famous sermon, he says this. He says, uh, 
You have heard it said that it's wrong to commit murder, but I say to you, if you're angry with somebody, you've committed murder in your heart. Jesus said, it's, you've heard it said it's wrong to commit adultery, but if you lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus said, it's not just what you do. It's what you think. It's what's in your heart. And then Jesus, in that same sermon, says something that just cracks me up. And it's later on in chapter 7. And he's talking about God and how God loves us, and he says this. Listen, what father is there who, if his son asks for a piece of bread, gives him a rock? Or what father, if his son asks for a fish, gives him a serpent? And then he said, it's an offhanded comment, and this is what, why it cracks me up. He says, and if, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts to you? And it just seems like he says it like we all should know that we are evil. And he says it in a way that we should know that we are evil, but he is not. He doesn't include, he doesn't say, you know how we're all, like, if I'm preaching to you, I'm always trying to include myself with you. And that's not what Jesus does. Jesus makes an impossible standard to live up to, and then he lives up to it, right? We would expect that if what John said is true, that the transcendent became intimate in Jesus, and that Jesus really is God of God's that Jesus would have a purity that would shine like light toward us, that we would see ourselves in a different way, that we would see our wickedness as compared to his purity. We would expect that divinity would leak out of him every once in a while, and he would have power over the laws of nature, and we would call those miracles. What we would not expect is that he would love us, love us in a way that would make himself vulnerable, What we would not expect is that he would love us so deeply that his love would be sacrificial. Even though we love our children like that when we're at our very best, even though that's what we desperately, how we desperately want someone to love us. John says this, Jesus came full of two things. He came full of grace and full of truth. The deepest fear in every human heart is the same. It's the same in your heart and in mine. That if someone really knew you, really knew all the truth about you, not just what you do, but what you think and what you are in your heart, they would not, they could not love you. But Jesus comes and he says, I am full of truth. I know you. I know you are wicked. But I'm also full of grace and I love you. I love you. Listen, there's all kinds of evidence that John includes, right? He includes prophecies and miracles and the empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances and the existence of a moral conscience and all kinds of things that point to the existence of God. But the way God made himself obvious, the way he solved the dilemma of us needing both a transcendent and an intimate God That solution has a name, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And that brings me to the third point. What happens when God becomes obvious? We would think that if God becomes obvious to someone and they come into a relationship with him through Jesus, that it would actually change them and change everything about them. And that's what we find. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. One of my favorite stories is a story about a guy named Harry Ironsides. Harry Ironsides was the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago back in the 1930s and 1940s. And the story is that he was at an outdoor event, and he was in the audience. It wasn't his event, and some, but the people who were putting on the event saw him in the audience and called him up on stage just to say a few words. And so he came up on stage, and when he came up on stage, there was a heckler who started to shout at him and challenge him to a debate. The heckler was an atheist, and he said, I want to I debate you. I'm an atheist. You believe in God. I want to debate you. I want to debate you. And, and Harry Einstein tried to ignore him because it wasn't his event. And finally, he couldn't ignore him anymore. And he said, sir, this is not the place. This is not my event. We won't debate here. But I'll tell you what, next Saturday, we'll debate. You and me, right here. And, and then he added this. He said, oh, and before we debate, when you, when you come next week, you bring one person whose life has been transformed by becoming an atheist. And I will bring 50 ex-prostitutes and 50 ex-alcoholics whose lives have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we'll debate. What was he doing? He was saying, I'm going to bring some evidence. I'm going to, you want to know that God exists? I'm going to bring evidence of what happens when God makes himself obvious to someone and they come into a relationship with Jesus because he will change everything about them. This weekend, we have gotten to have baptisms in all of our services. In baptism, people are coming and they're saying, listen, I want everybody to know I am now evidence for the existence of the true God. They're coming and they're saying, God made himself obvious to me through his son, Jesus. And because Jesus is full of both grace and truth, my life is never, ever going to be the same. And I want everybody to know. Baptism, we do a couple of things. Right? When we plunge somebody down in the water, they are affirming something, and they are also identifying. When we take them and we push them down into the water, they are affirming that they believe that Jesus died and was buried. When we pull them up out of the water, they are saying, I affirm and I believe that Jesus resurrected to new life. But they're also identifying. When we plunge them down into the water, they are saying, I believe that Jesus died, but he died for me. And, because, and when he died, I died. And when Jesus resurrected, I believe he resurrected in power and life for me. And because he lives, I live. So we started this by asking the question, if God wants to be known, if God is real, why doesn't he make himself more obvious? And the answer is there's a problem with obvious. There's just so much light, so much sound you can take. There's just so much God you can take. And if God is transcendent, but we need him to be intimate, how does he be both? And the answer is Jesus. And the evidence is when Jesus comes inside of someone and their life changes and is never, ever the same again. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate and worship with the ones who have come to be baptized here in the sanctuary and over in East Hall as they declare and profess that God has made them, himself obvious to them through his son Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you, and I am grateful that you are the God that is worthy to be worshipped. 
that you are beyond, you are glorious, you are powerful, and yet you have decided to make yourself intimate, and you have sent your Son Jesus for us, to us. Father, thank you for bringing these people who now stand as evidence of what happens when someone comes to know you through your Son Jesus. I pray that you would help us to worship you well. And I pray for all of us that know you, that we will remind ourselves even during this that we are evidence every day of who you are and what you have done. Thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.